And so I had to have some, some competency here. I needed to know what it is that they were asking for, what we called it there in the warehouse, and then find it on the computer with all of our codes. And I think we had 30,000 individual uh, items that we sold there in this warehouse. And so I had to know what I was talking about. I'd never worked in plumbing in my life. Not a day. I mean, the experience I had with plumbing was flushing the toilet, turning on the faucet, you know, things like that, and trusting that hot water is going to come out when I demand hot water. I didn't even know where that came from. Learned it was from a water heater, right? And so here I am staring at these guys and gals in the face that are ready to go and do their jobs. I felt extremely underqualified to be doing what I was asked to be doing. And praise be to God, I had some good coworkers that could tell, see me squirming and start hearing the plumbers raising their voices at me because they're growing impatient and they would come and give me assistance. But how does it feel to be ill-equipped? How does it feel to be underqualified? Now, for me, it felt really scary. It felt intimidating, uh, frustrating. I want to do a good job, but I don't have the tools to do it. Hopeless. It felt lonely at times, too. I need help. No one's here to help me. And then I'd walk away, and I'd go to my lunch breaks, and I'd be humiliated and embarrassed a little bit at times. But those were part of the growing pains of learning how to get into the job. But, but last week, we saw Jesus give his disciples a task. Go and be my witnesses throughout the earth. Now, think about it, if you were in their sandals for a moment. Think about what that must have felt like. They probably felt scared. They, they probably felt intimidated. Maybe even a little frustrated. Wait, Jesus, you're about to go and you've given us this task. How are we supposed to fulfill this mission? But here they are at the moment where they're called to go fulfill the mission that Jesus gave them to. And I'm sure they felt underqualified. These guys were just fishermen. Uh, one of them was a tax collector. Another was a militant rebel. These were ordinary people, ordinary guys with an extraordinary mission, right? But every origin story explains how the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And now these guys, they, they didn't all of a sudden become extraordinary in and of themselves. But we see in this moment here, and we're going to read these verses in Acts chapter 2, when something powerful happens to them to allow them so that they could go out and live out the mission that Jesus had called them to. And here's our big idea this morning, if you'd like to write it down. Our big idea is this. King Jesus... He was taken up last week, we saw. He wasn't taken up last week. We saw last week that he was taken up. King Jesus was taken up, and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people for the mission. King Jesus sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to empower his people for the mission. Follow along as I read aloud in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says this. Now, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, 
and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new new wine. Again, this is our big idea this morning. King Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people for the mission. But this is a narrative. So let's let's just set the story here a little bit. What's what's the setting of what's going on here? Well, we know that, that it's the time of Pentecost. Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50th. And what the Jews were celebrating in Jerusalem there was the Feast of Weeks or the the Feast of Harvest, the time when they would celebrate the fact that the Lord has provided for them for another year of grain and food so that they could live in the land. And so they celebrate. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God gave his people the law. This was the festival that they were to celebrate, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks. And so it came to be at this time, it was called Pentecost, meaning 50th, seven weeks or about 50 days after the Passover. And they celebrated God's ongoing provision in the land as a sign of his covenant-keeping love in Israel. When they took that grain, they offered up that grain as first fruits, as an offering, and as a sacrifice to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. It was a celebration. God is keeping covenant with us and providing for our needs. And included all kinds of sacrifices there at the temple in Jerusalem. These farmers are bringing their first fruits of their crops to offer to the Lord in thanksgiving and worship. And over time, the feast became associated with God's covenant with Israel, specifically the giving of the law. They were celebrating here, God is keeping covenant with us by providing for our needs. It's time for us to renew our commitment to obey the commands of God, to obey his law, to keep up our end of the covenant. It became associated with God's giving of the law after the exodus at Mount Sinai, a time of covenant renewal. But with the Spirit's arrival, as we saw in this story, God was showing that he was beginning something new. He was bringing a new covenant to his people and to all humanity. Well, so that's a setting. That's what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. But what are the disciples doing specifically? What's the setting for them? And I think I've got a picture here of the upper room in Jerusalem today. The upper room in Jerusalem. And, and, and I've, I've got to see it. My wife and I got to spend some time in Israel. And, and now, whether or not that's the true upper room or not, we, we don't know. And, and we're not actually told specifically that the disciples were waiting in the upper room. But let's just entertain that for a moment. There the disciples are, about 120 of them, including the 12 apostles, including the new newest apostle, Matthias, who we saw was appointed last week, and they're there, and they're waiting, and they're in Jerusalem. But what are they doing? What are they doing as they wait? Well, in chapter 1, verse 14, we see it, and if you've got your Bible open, you can see it. If not, just listen as I read this aloud. All these with one accord, all the apostles, all the disciples, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? 
prayer, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So here's the setting. Pentecost is happening in the city. These disciples are gathered together and they're devoting themselves. They're committing themselves to prayer. And I'm sure they're taking breaks for eating and and sleeping and whatnot. But what is the work that they're doing? They're waiting and waiting and they're calling upon the name of the Lord. Waiting for that power that Jesus promised before they went to go out and fulfill this mission. So there they are. That's the setting. Pentecost in the city, they're there in the room. They're praying and waiting on the Lord. Well, what happens? What's the event that happens here in this moment, in this moment in the life of the church? This extraordinary experience that God's people had, the disciples had at this moment. Well, the disciples were praying, and, and I think we've got a picture here of what it, what it may have looked like. It's a piece of art here that helps us envision what it's like. But here they are, and the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. Now, there's a lot of different moments throughout the Bible that I think all of us, if, if we could go back and see, and maybe someday in the, in the video recordings of heaven, we could go back and take a look at some of these, but this would be one of those moments if I could see it with my own eyes. What was that like? The Holy Spirit arrives as promised by Jesus from the Father, sent from Jesus himself as well, sent down the Holy Spirit, and he arrives, boom, comes from heaven. Well, the senses were engaged here. What did they hear? They heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and the sound filled the house. And this makes sense that this arrival of the Spirit would sound like the wind. In fact, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the word for Spirit is ruach, and it means breath or wind. We turn over the pages to the New Testament, and the word for spirit is panuma. Again, the same idea as the Hebrew word, meaning breath or wind. And so we think of the spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 3, you can't see the spirit, but you could see his effects. Just like you see the wind blowing through the trees, and you could see them moving, so you could see the effects of the spirit. And so the Spirit comes in this moment, moment like a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And, and if you could imagine, I, if I was leading kids right now, I'd have us all make the sound of the wind. You know, we could do that together if we're not too embarrassed by it, right? But hearing the sound of the wind entering the room. So that's what they heard. But what happens next? They see something now. What do they see? Tongues of fire. And they appeared there in the room. And it's as if they rested over the heads of these disciples. Now, we don't know if it's just the apostles or or many others, but we see that these tongues of fire are resting upon them. A sound like the wind and tongues of fire resting upon them. Now, this image of fire, Jesus has already alluded to. In fact, he speaks of this moment that was to come way back in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. As, as John the Baptist is there, actually, it's John is the one who speaks of it because people were asking John the Baptist because he preached with power. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus, someone who went before Jesus, but the people were so impressed by John the Baptist, they said, are you the Messiah? But listen to what John the Baptist says. As the people were in expectation, Luke three fifteen, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. Who is this? Speaking of Jesus. 
the, set, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And what is John the Baptist say about what Jesus is going to do? He will, in the future, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what we see, friends, here in this moment, in this event, this sound uh, like a mighty rushing wind and these tongues of fire that are resting over the heads of the disciples, it's this moment. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit and he comes like a wind and he comes like fire. Fire in the shapes of tongues. It's signifying that the Spirit's presence and His power there now in His disciples indwelling inside them would communicate the very words of God through them. These tongues come and then what do the disciples begin doing? They begin praising God and they were sent on this prophetic mission to deliver the Word of God to humanity. The Word of God about Jesus, the Messiah, and what He's done, and the implications of that, and how every single person all over the globe can have eternal life. Wow, talk about all of a sudden feeling qualified, not in themselves, but because the Spirit had arrived. Well, what about this fire? Why, why, did it, why did the Spirit have to come in fire? Well, fire is, is, is noted throughout all the scriptures as, as something that purifies. Something that purifies and something that also destroys. So this fire that, that is seen, these tongues of fire, it, it signifies God's holy presence all throughout the scriptures. And sometimes this Holy Spirit uh, would purify and make holy, but for others, his presence in fire brings wrath and judgment. So the message of the disciples by the power of the Spirit would have a purifying effect upon those who would believe. They would be purified by this holy fire of God through the message of the apostles by the power of the Spirit. For those who would believe, it would purify and it would have a great effect that would cause them to experience the holiness of God in their lives. You know, we just sang that song, holy, holy is the Lord. The fire throughout the Bible describes or is, is a sign of his holiness. But for others, for those who would reject the testimony of the apostles, this fire would be like a fire of judgment for them. So what was the effect? What was the effect? We see the scene here. We see the effects here. We see the event here. The Holy Spirit sounding like wind, coming upon like them, them like fire. Well, what happened here? Well, these apostles and these disciples, they start speaking. They start speaking out. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. What do they begin doing? Do they begin preaching? Well, maybe they get to that, but first and foremost, they begin praising God. They're telling the mighty works of God and praising him miraculously. Now, this would be uh, something like if we just started speaking and praising out uh, praises to God and calling out to him and worshiping him. But here's the miracle of it all is that not only were they praising spontaneously and declaring the mighty works of God, but they were doing it in languages that they had never, ever learned before. Praising God in foreign tongues. And this is the miracle. It's not a miracle of hearing. It's not like they were speaking Greek or Aramaic and people were hearing it in other languages. No, the scripture here indicates that they were speaking in languages they never heard, or never learned, excuse me. They were praising God. Now, who were the people that heard all this? 
Who are the people that hurt? And I think we've got a map there. I mean, it's, it's a map and it includes 12 different regions that we see here in this account in Acts chapter 2. And you could see the names of some of these regions like Cappadocia and Mesopotamia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and, and Egypt and Asia and all the way out to Rome. But you could see this is covering portions of all the known world at that time of the Roman Empire. And, and what's happening here is absolutely amazing. God is doing something that hadn't been done in so long. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, humanity did something in rebellion to God. Do you know what they did? Genesis chapter 11 describes humanity getting puffed up with pride. And what do they do? They think we could reach up to God in heaven. We, we could be the greatest in all the land. So they built a tower to their own magnificence, to their own glory. And they build this tower and say, we could be here and everybody in all the world can see how mighty we are in humanity. And God says, that's not what I told you to do. <laughs> I told you to give me glory by going out and having dominion over all the earth, not setting up a tower to your own glory. You bear my image. You give me glory in the way you worship me. And so what did God do in that moment? He confused their languages. He confused their languages. I, I believe up until that time, everybody spoke pretty much the same language. But in that moment, God said, I'm going to give you all multiple languages so that you can't stay together, but you'll spread out over the earth like I asked you to do. That was in judgment because of humanity's sin. But God, as we just talked about earlier as a, as a service team earlier, God who's gracious and compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, in this moment, he reverses the effects of the Tower of Babel. He is actually allowing the apostles to speak in languages that they've never known before, praising God, and people are hearing it, and it's a sign to them that this is what's happening. God is bringing the promise of the Holy Spirit. God has sent his Messiah, and now what used to divide humanity because of various languages, God is doing a miracle of his grace to bring peoples from every tribe and language and tongue and nation back together again. God is reversing the effects of Babylon right here. Praise be to God. These people are hearing it and they're seeing it. And the words described here throughout this passage are this. They were bewildered. They were amazed. And they were astonished. Uh, some were questioning the others while others, uh, they were questioning what, what's this mean, while others were mocking the disciples. You see, what these people saw was a supernatural work of God right there in the midst of the apostles. But they needed an explanation, and we're going to see that next week. How does Peter, how do the apostles describe exactly what's happening? Friends, it's amazing when you think about it. You'd think, if a miracle showed up like this, wouldn't it turn all of us just to believers in a moment? You know, if you could go out to your workplace later on this week after the holiday and you showed up and God did a miracle through you, you asked, Lord, do a miracle right here so that everyone would believe. That's no guarantee that belief will happen. Miracles are no guarantee of belief. But what God has done in this moment is that he's caught the attention of those that are here to say, hey, wake up, listen to the message of my followers. Listen to the message of my messengers, the apostles. You see, no miracles can change a heart. We've got to hear We've got to believe. We've got to have something happen inside of us through the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that's going to happen as we look at the following passage next week. 
So they're left bewildered. They're left wondering, but what has happened that no one can deny? Something weird is going on. They've seen and heard this sound like a mighty rushing wind. They've seen these tongues of fire, and they're proclaiming the words of God and praising him in languages that they had never learned before. Well, let's ask this question. Why is the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost significant for the church's origin story? I mean, what's, what's the big deal about this? Why is this so significant and so crucial for the story of Acts moving forward, the Spirit's arrival? But, but, but I think we've got to ask even a more fundamental question than this. We've got to ask ourselves, who is the Holy Spirit? Who or what is the Holy Spirit? And, and I don't have time to dig into this too deeply, but I'd like to just give you just something to put your, your minds upon so that we can think about as we talk about the Holy Spirit. Because he's arrived and he's not going anywhere. He's going to be present all throughout the book of Acts. You see, this isn't the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts. This book is the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit through his Apostles. This is the work of God. So you're going to see the Spirit all throughout this book in the book of Acts. But who is or what is the Holy Spirit? And I have three things for you. First of all, the Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is personal. When you think about the Spirit, don't, don't think it. Think he. Think him. He's personal. He's one who can be grieved. He's one who can be quenched. He's one who can speak. He's one who can create. He is a person. He is not a thing. Secondly, when we think about this Holy Spirit, he is personal. And secondly, he is God. He is God. He's co-equal with the Father. He's co-equal with the Son. We at Fairfax Bible Church are what theologians would call Trinitarian. We believe in one God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when you hear the Spirit, you think he is personal and he is God. And we're going to see in the book of Acts how the apostles attribute that he is God, okay? Thirdly, he's personal, he's God. Thirdly, he is sent by the Father and the Son. They're co-equal, but the Spirit submits to the Son, and the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. The Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son, and that's what we see right here. Jesus has been given the gift of the Spirit from the Father, and Jesus has sent the Spirit to his people. The Spirit is personal. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Well, what did his arrival mean for the first disciples? What did it mean for them? And we're going to see this in our text next week, but I couldn't wait. I had to get to it a little bit now because, because we're not going to have too much time to cover it this week. We want to see what did Peter and the apostles believe about the significance of the Spirit's arrival. Well, it says this, that in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, the prophets of the Old Testament announced that the Spirit would come in a powerful way, and God's people were waiting and waiting and waiting for Him to come. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I, God speaking, will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, what will happen? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. What an image. It's God just pouring it out. 
pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and, and, and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Spirit's arrival, sure, it, it signifies judgment, but it also signifies the day of salvation. You see, the Spirit's arrival means this, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But did that day come? Did the apostles really believe that that day had come with the Spirit's arrival? Listen to Acts 2, verses 32 to 33. Peter now announcing this, and we see this a little bit later. If you look down in the text, it says this, This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he being Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is, this is good news for those that feel underqualified in this moment. These disciples, these apostles called to go and bear witness about Jesus to the ends of the earth now know the spirit, the power that we need to go and bear witness has been poured out upon us. The disciples were now empowered for the mission. They were transformed. And this, and this for you, if you identify here as one who's underqualified to fulfill the mission of Jesus, as I do, as all of us should, listen to the transformation that took place in the disciples' lives. They went from being cowardly to courageous. They went from bewilderment to bravery. They went from self-preserving to self-sacrificing. They went from looking out for number one to loving others more than themselves. They went from lacking skills to become leaders in the church. Why? Because they were great? No, I just heard a line this week. They were swimming in the deep end with shallow end skills. But one thing they did have is they had the Holy Spirit who had been poured out to empower them for the mission that Jesus had called them to. The Spirit was the difference in their lives to live in them and to empower them for the mission. But as we think about this this morning, this is not a message just for the apostles. Luke wrote this down for a reason for readers like you and like me and like Theophilus, the original audience of Luke. So we got to ask ourselves, what about Theophilus, the reader? What about us? What about us? What difference does the Spirit's arrival make for you and for me? Oh, friends, this is good news. You know, we talk about the good news of Jesus, that he died on the cross and, and he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven. But part of that good news is that he sent the Spirit here to you and to me, here in this room at Katherine Johnson Middle School in Fairfax, Virginia, in 2022. The Spirit has come for you and he's come for me. What about us? Well, because the Spirit has been poured out, one, God's presence is always with us. God's presence is always with us. Friends, I am so excited to hear that because some days I can feel so incredibly lonely. I can feel so incredibly powerless. But because the Spirit has come, because Jesus has sent him, God's presence is always with you and he's always with me, all who are in Christ. Listen, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that y'all, or you all, it's plural, you all are God's temple? 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Wow. Talk about having somebody on your side, right? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You know, sometimes we may get discouraged. Well, I wish we had a church building, a place that we could call the church. Look around. Look at your neighbor. Look at your family. Look at your friends. Those of us who are in Christ, we together today are God's temple. God's presence dwells in you and with you. And when you leave this place and drive away, God's presence will go with you. What difference does this mean for us today? God's presence is always with us. Secondly, we have God's power to obey his commands. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the fact that those who are in Christ Jesus no longer have any condemnation over their lives. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, Romans 8, 3 says, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you ever have days where you feel like, I have failed so deeply. I have failed so miserably. It feels almost impossible to obey God's commands. Praise be to God, he has sent his spirit to empower you and to empower me today, tomorrow, and the next day to obey God's commands. What does this mean for us today? Thirdly, we've inherited the privilege of adoption into God's family. We've inherited the privilege of adoption into God's family. Listen to what the Spirit does for you and for me in our lives. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Friends, what a gift it is. When you failed, when you fall on your face, when you feel unloved, when you feel dirty, when you feel, feel filthy, you come to God and you say, Lord, I'm believing the lies today, but I want to repent of that. Remind me of the truth. And the Spirit comes along and he says, don't forget, you're a child of God. You've been adopted into the family. And I say, oh, Lord, say it to me again. I want to hear it again. And the Spirit comes along and says, to my heart, you are family. Your God loves you. Friend, today, in Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit that has been given to us, you have a constant reminder living in your heart today that you are in the family. And nothing and no one could ever change that. These are great truths. And in closing, I want to ask this. What does this mean for Monday? These are great theoretical truths, but what does this mean for Monday? How does this change my life tomorrow? How does it change my behaviors as I leave here today? I've got one more verse that I want to share with you. I know I share a lot of Bible, but I think it's helpful for us to see, right? John 7, 37 to 39. This is Jesus now, and he says this. He's in this moment. He's at another feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is Jesus. He's given an invitation to those that feel emotionally and spiritually thirsty. He says, come and drink. 
And whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what was Jesus talking about? John gives us an explanation. Now, this he said about the who? The Spirit, whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, friends, we we can look back on the other side of that event. Jesus has been glorified. Jesus has sent the Spirit. So guess what? This promise is for you and for me. Anybody who believes in the name of Jesus out of his, out of her heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, when we think about, I've got to take the mic off here because I've got to walk around a little bit. When we think about this water, I think for those of us who long to experience the presence of the spirit in our lives, we, we think of, of his being poured out kind of like as a one-time event, like you'd pour a, a glass of water. And so here it is, the Spirit, one time, poured into me, great. And now I've only got so much Spirit, right? And as the days go by and the cares of this world, a little bit of that Spirit is poured out, right? And maybe I'll do a good deed for someone else or I'll share the good news of Jesus with someone. And it gets poured out little bit by little bit until eventually all the water is out and, and we feel like this empty glass right here, just an empty glass. And what we think is, well, now it's time for me to just sit and wait for the Spirit to be poured out again. When will the Spirit be poured out? And I'm waiting and waiting, and, and I almost feel like it's God is tempting me here or teasing me. God, I'm waiting for that next experience. I'm waiting for that next spiritual high to happen so that I can be filled up again with your Spirit and be empowered and feel your presence and be reminded that I'm adopted. But I just sit here and wait passively, just waiting for maybe the Spirit would come by again and, and pour himself, or Jesus would pour his Spirit back into me again. That's, that's how we often think of it. But I, I've got a different image that I think best fits with what Jesus is talking about here. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I've got another slide for you here. That is Vernal Falls in Yosemite Valley in California. And if you've ever hiked up Vernal Falls, you see that little staircase to the right, you know that if you hike up that, especially in the springtime, you better be ready to get wet. Because this waterfall is so powerful and so mighty, it creates this mist spray that just covers the whole place. And you can see those stairs are soaking wet. you got to watch out because it can get a little bit slippery. But it's just this constant flow at Vernal Falls, and it creates this huge mist, and you can't avoid getting wet. And down below the falls, it has this beautiful river area called Happy Isles. My family and I, we were just sitting at Happy Isles just about a month and a half ago as we were getting ready to drive out here to the East Coast. And it was so refreshing and so cool to hear the sound of this river that comes from this falls right here. Friends, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We don't have to stand and wait empty and dry and thirsty. Why? Because you've got the Spirit living in you, the Spirit living in me, the Spirit living in us. That's like rivers of living water. Are you thirsty today? Call upon his name. How do we do that? How do we tomorrow, starting on Monday, live this out? Well, our name is Fairfax Bible Church for a reason. It's not because it's just a nice name, but because we believe this is how we experience the river of living water. We hear of Jesus. We think upon Jesus. Well, not only that, we've got six pursuits, not just the Bible, but we've got passionate worship. 
Today, as we sing to one another, as we sing to our Lord, we experience the power of the Spirit. We're being filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How else do we tap into this river that's flowing in us? Well, we do like the disciples did. Where did, where did, where did the Spirit find them? They were praying praying, calling upon God. And as we continue on in this book of Acts, you're going to see that the Spirit is going to work in mighty and powerful ways. And almost every time, the precursor to the Spirit working is that God's people got on their knees and they prayed. That's one of our pursuits. Fervent prayer. Not just because it's what we ought to do. We learned in Sunday school it's time to pray. But because we're asking God to do something that none of us can do in this place. And that's to transform us by His supernatural power for his mission. And how else do we tap into this river of living water? I love our mission statement here. We glorify God by making disciples while living in loving community with you and with me. And the spirit in you encourages the spirit in me. And the spirit in me at times encourages the spirit in you. And so we have these rivers of living water flowing in us who is the spirit. And we experience him through his word. We experience him through worship. We experience and receive him and enjoy the benefits of being in the family through prayer and through community. These aren't just good ideas to have for mission statements and organizational names. No, our commitment to remain in the flow of the spirit, your commitment, my commitment, individually and corporately, will determine whether we're just a club or if we're a supernatural community showing the glory of God in our city, in our county, in our region, and in the world. So I want to ask you, are you walking in the river of the Spirit today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the Spirit has been given. What a gift it is to have the Spirit in our lives, to dwell in us, to comfort us, to empower us, to remind us that we are children of God. We thank you so much for the gift that he is. And now today, Father, we want to go live on mission. And we're asking for your spirit to fill us up today. This river of living water that's inside of us, we, we trust in Jesus as Savior, but, but we're also asking, let us live out his mission. We trust in Jesus. We trust in his word. We trust in the power that he's given to us by the Holy Spirit. And today, as we get prepared to leave, we want to walk in that river, in the spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.